This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In most of the prior episodes of this podcast, I would summarize, criticize, discuss, and review single issues from my comic book collection, which often I selected at random. Any book from my collection was eligible as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. We asked if the issue was worth 25 cents. It was a bargain at 25 cents, or still overpriced. And you stayed tuned and found out. But for this 100th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, or should I say, for this fourth part of the 100th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, we are again going big. Because over the six supersized parts of episode one, we are covering, that's right, 100 comics. As I've explained in the prior episodes, these 100 books came from a pair of 50-issue grab bags that I bought for $7 each. That's right, 100 comics at 14 cents a piece. Obviously, the reviews of these issues will be quite brief, and I will be joined by guests for as many of the issues as I can possibly schedule, Not for all of them, mind you, just as many as possible. Now we're saving up our feedback for episode 100 for later in part 6 of episode 100, but keep those cards and letters coming. Like I said, these will be long episodes, so let's get right to the comics. First up, the book that nobody wanted to talk about. Book 55, XSE number 2, from Marvel Comics, cover dated December 1996. You remember how I've said in every one of these episodes that I hope to have guests on for every book? Well, here's the first time that that didn't happen. This book was on the list of available unclaimed books for the last six or eight guests that were invited onto this, and nobody picked it. Over and over again, this book just wasn't wanted. And I could have talked someone into covering the book with me, but eventually I just asked myself, what is it that everyone seems to know about this book? Or, why did nobody want to talk about this one? So here I am. The story in this one is Future Intense, written by John Ostrander, with art by Diodato Studios and Mozart Cuto. This is the second of a four-issue series, and for clarification, XSE are Xavier's Security Enforcers. Bishop and Shard continue their trip down memory lane after defending his classmates during an implat attack. Bishop was promoted to a full XSE officer, and about a year later, Shard also graduated. Years later, Bishop was a squad commander who chose very odd candidates for his team. Two, Malcolm and Randall, had pretty useless combat powers and didn't really like each other all that much. That changed after both lost friends and relatives during a massacre 
at Harmony Base, the only colony where mutants and humans work together. Now here's the thing. John Ostrander is a really nice guy and a very good, solidly professional comic book writer. And that being said, the scripting here is fine. Uh, The storytelling, characterization, building on previously laid concepts throughout the issue, all of that is handled well, handled professionally. It works. But the problem is the story itself, the structure of the story, which, for all I know, is the structure of the whole miniseries. This takes place in the future, from what I could tell, but the story is a flashback to the past. But that past is still in the future, just not as far in the future. At least that's what I'm getting from this. So I think my issues with the issue, and spoilers, I'm not a big fan of this, came from that very base level, the nature of the story and the way it's being told. And if you're not on board with that, it's hard to enjoy the specifics, the particulars of a comic book. And as we've said many times in this episode, and will many more times, it's always better to read the first or last issue of a miniseries. For a four-parter, issue three is usually the slowest, usually the worst to read in isolation, followed closely by number two. And remember, this is a Marvel book from 1996, and I don't have any problems with Mike Diodato's art in general, but this is specifically labeled as Diodato Studios. So who exactly is doing what with the art is a bit hazy, a bit uncertain. And here, whoever is doing the art is channeling the 1996 Marvel house style. And for my taste, that's not really a good thing. Now I've said on more than one part of this episode, and I will say it again, But the entire X-Universe is a huge blind spot for me. I have no idea the context in which this issue takes place. But to be fair, the issue did not help me at all in figuring that out. So to the half dozen or so guests that have appeared or will appear on this episode, the ones who had the chance to cover this book with me and chose another title instead... I applaud your foresight. I guess I have the honors. So let's just go ahead, get this over with, and make it official. XSE number two, not worth a quarter. At least, not to me. And just between us, it was a pretty easy call. Next up, it's a video game tie-in, book 56, Sonic Universe 56, Archie Comics, cover dated November 2013, and to talk about this, we have a man who has spent way too much of his adult life playing video games, at least according to his neglected family. It's Mr. Dr. Bill Robinson! Hello, Professor Allen. You are the right man for this job. 
That's right. I neglect my family every day for video <laughs> games and comics. So do you have a history with the Sonic characters in, in any format? Video games, cartoons, yes, uh, I, trading cards, I played, comic books. I played the Sonic game back in the day. Never really was that good at it, but I've played Sonic. But I've never read any Sonic comic books. You know, I've always seen Archie Comics throughout my entire life. Like, I remember Archie Comics from a wee lad sitting in the <laughs> in the grocery cart at the grocery store, seeing the digests and things like that. And now, as a man about two and a half years from age 50, <laughs> I remember last week seeing Archie in the digest in the grocery store, but I'm not in the shopping cart. I'm behind the shopping cart. <laughs> and, and it just brought to my mind, I'm like, I couldn't believe all the different Sonic comics and digests, and they got the issue fifty six, and this isn't even the true Sonic comic, right? Right. This, this is, like is the Sonic spin-off. universe. Yeah. Man, I didn't uh, realize realize that Sonic and Archie were so prolific in about everything. How long is it going to take Marvel and DC to get to an issue fifty six of anything they have ongoing now? It, oh, they'll never. We get may to that never anymore. see it again. Well, what we have here is Pirate Plunder Panic Part 2 by mm-hmm. Tracy, oh, Tracy Yardley and Jim Amash. And we have Captain Metal and his crew carrying the captured Blaze to their island stronghold. Blaze bides her time, vowing that she will avenge her departed friends. They are not departed in, like, the dead sense, because they hid in a box of explosives, which, uh, a- as a Navy man... That is highly recommended. Is that correct? That is the yeah, place to hide. Yeah, they're also readily available to where you could just jump in them and <laughs> float around in them. Well, inside Captain Metal's throne room, the captain announces his plans to power his ultimate weapon, the Ego War, with the Soul Emerald. But Blames informs him that only she can control the Emerald. Blaze is overjoyed when she sees Amy and Cream, but things go bad fast. The captain discovers Bean and Bark. Trying to make off with the emerald, Captain Metal orders Swash to and drop buckle. the heroes, then dispatches the rest of the crew to capture the thieves. There was actually a lot happening in this book. That was my first thought. Yeah, did you pick up on the subplot that the Captain Metal might actually be the captain guy, Doc Ratchetern, who, oh, who left okay. and went to sea? I don't know, I kind of thought that maybe because Doc Ratchetern was a robot as well and i I don't know i'm not sure if that's you know because uh this is my first delving into the sonic universe so i'm not sure how this plays out like i said there was a lot going on and it i kind of like the idea of a kid's book taking a little while to read this took more time to read than a brian michael bendis book (laughs) you know there were captions in every panel multiple panels on every page i know there was a, a lot going on and then there was no, I don't think there was any inner monologue. Interesting. Ego War. Looked a lot like Brainiac's ship <laughs> with an eye patch and a pirate skull for a face. Ego War. I don't quite get that reference. Can't remember his arch. Doctor, what is his name? You've played the games more recently than I have. Oh, well. Which would be if, ever. Oh, because uh, I was going to say the last time I played a Sonic game was on a Sega Genesis on board a ship at sea. So well, it's the, been quite a while. That is the perfect experience for this comic. Well, oddly enough, I guess it would be, yeah. <laughs> I was pleasantly surprised by, by this book because when, when you sent it to me, I'm like, Sonic 56, Sonic Universe. 
And looking at the cover, it's kind of like, hmm, all right, looks kind of kitty. But the henchbots named Buckle and Swash. <laughs> when I was the target market age for this, I would have thought that was hilarious. I still think it's not bad. And they did release the Kraken. <laughs> yes, the mechanical Kraken. Did you notice even the trees, the palm trees on the island are uh, that they go to are all metal? The leaves. Oh, I see that. Nice. They're all riveted. Right. There's a lot of thought put into this. Mm-hmm. For a kid's book, it's kind of well scripted out. It's thought out. It's not like the, like I remember reading the old Richie Rich books of old that was just, right. you know, we're silly. I'm interested, and if I ever come across the rest of this in a 25-cent bin, well, I'd probably pick it up. Well, that does bring it to it. You've pretty much answered the question, but the guest does get to render judgment first. Sonic Universe 56. Is this worth 25 cents? Yes, this is well worth 25 cents. Easily worth 25 cents. Well, I, I, I would I would maybe even push it to 50. Now maybe, you're talking crazy. Maybe 33. 33 <laughs> cents. Obviously be better if you could get the whole storyline and all that. But even for me, with minimal Sonic knowledge... I thought this was fine. If you're looking for a fun kitty book, definitely mm-hmm. worth a quarter. That's What's a, nice about it is like Marvel used to do is on the inside the first page, they recap what happened in the right, previous issue. Exactly. So you're not totally lost coming in. Nope. Thanks for joining me, Dr. Bill. I appreciate you bringing all of that video game and piracy experience to this one. Wait, what? I thought you were going to edit that out. No, seriously. Wait, no, wait, wait. Some Marvel Horror, 1990s style. Book 57 is Morbius, number 5. Cover dated January 1993. We've got Morbius's biggest fan on the internet, Luke Giaconetti. <laughs> Welcome back. Oh, thank you for having me. You knew it was coming if we were talking about Morbius, then uh, I would probably creep up out of the shadows and piss my way onto the show here. Keen-eared listeners will know that this is not the first time we've talked Morbius. Way back in quarter bin 61, you joined me to talk about an issue of Morbius Revisited. Definitely glad to have you back. So you are a big fan of Morbius. Yes. And I guess it's a two-part question, why and for how long? (laughs) It's interesting that we brought Morbius number five because I got into Morbius right around this time, a few issues after this. My brother always kind of gravitated more towards the Punisher when it came to Marvel characters. And the Punisher at this time had a couple of crossovers with Ghost Rider. And that kind of led me into the Midnight Suns family of books. And of those, Morbius was the one that I I really gravitated towards because Morbius to me is like the ultimate Marvel character. Here's a guy who's got these phenomenal cosmic powers, itty bitty living space, you know. He's got the, the, the woe is me Oh, you know, my, my power is a curse. Why must I walk this world forever? You know, he's like Ben Grimm turned up to 11. And it is definitely science gone bad. Because he's the scientific vampire. You know, he's not even a real traditional style vampire like, like Dracula. I would have been 11 reading these books, 11, 12. So this was right up my alley. You know, the gory uh, monster action books 
that were the Midnight Sun. So yes, that that's what got me into Morbius. And from there, I kind of got more into his old stuff, you know, his time fighting against Spider-Man, his book from the 70s and stuff like that. And hey, you know, Ghost Rider just is having a renaissance. He's mm-hmm. on TV. And the Morbius stuff writes itself, guys. I'm just saying. <laughs> I thought the Midnight Suns was a great idea. Bring in, oh, yeah. You know, bringing that area. That's but, sort of what DC sort of did with the dark mm-hmm. books in the New 52, that idea of these characters belong together. And Doctor Strange was involved in it. You had all these characters that were part of the Midnight Suns. And you know, hey, again, Doctor Strange, you know, not too long ago, crossed the $700 million arc. <laughs> and you want a Netflix show? Give me the Night Stalkers. And have Morbius be involved in that. That's that's a Netflix show right there. But what we have here is Here There Be Dragons, written by Len Kaminsky with art by Ron Wagner and Mike Witherby. Morbius and his doctor friend Jacob Weisenthal have worked out a cure for Morbius's vampirism. End of story. End of series. Oh, wait. <laughs> no, wait. It's not a permanent cure. Why, Luke? Because this is a Marvel book. Yes. <laughs> and it wears off after Morbius is beaten up by a gang of muggers. Meanwhile, a very troubled man named Wayne Gifford invites a demon into himself, transforming into the Basilisk. Morbius goes back after the muggers from earlier and stops them from sexually assaulting a woman. She flees, running into the Basilisk, which was a poor life choice. And about the last one she made. She's killed, and Morbius faces off against the Basilisk. To be continued. Nice. This is such a 90s book, and I don't mean that as a pejorative. We open with a subplot. This has been something that's been going on kind of behind the scenes in this series up to this point. Morbius and Jake trying to find a a serum they can give him that will suppress his vampirism. We get introduced to a new villain. We see his origin. His origin is typical for a Midnight Suns book, deals with the occult. Just a little aside, you notice all the porno mags in his room there? Then we get Morbius brutalizing criminals, which was, again, a very 90s thing. Morbius, of course, being Morbius, rips them apart. He does dine on them. That was his thing in the 90s, was that if he couldn't find a cure, he would only drink the blood of the guilty. And then the book ends with the cliffhanger of Basilisk and Morbius about to throw down. You know, had this been a 70s book, they would have fought this issue. Whereas in the 90s, this is what you do. You introduce the character in one, and then you had a two-part story, which was very common in Marvel books, especially for the 90s. There's so much just black blood in this. I I said the sequence where, uh, you know, Morbius attacks the muggers. He, He disembowels one guy. Let me just summarize it with this. There's a scrolch yeah. and a sclatch. So you can imagine what actions would develop those particular sound effects. I, I also get the feeling from both the cover copy, which says introducing the Basilisk, Morbius's greatest nemesis, and future knowledge that I have because I've read uh, the this I've read the next issue. I got a feeling that Kaminsky really wanted the Basilisk to be an arch nemesis to Morbius both monsters and they both feed on people but the basilisk would never turn down prey that was available got a great contrast built right in with these two characters if marvel would pay me to write a morbius book i would include the basilisk (laughs) i thought this was a good single issue i again i i've got to dig out number six and read that now we're we're on the same page this is worth a quarter 
Definitely. But it's the first of a two-parter. And it would always, yeah. of course, be better if you could find five and six. <laughs> but it is a pretty exciting one-off. If you want to just dip into the Morbius title, you yes. could do worse than this one. Oh, yeah. This definitely gives you an idea of what the 90s Morbius book was. And uh, if you like monster and horror books, you can't go wrong with the Midnight Suns books. Again, Luke, thanks for joining us. Appreciate you sharing that Morbius knowledge with us. I find that if you specialize in really obscure areas, you know, people tend to ask you onto a podcast when they need help with stuff. Genius! Next up, we're going back to Marvel, back to the X-World, book 58, New Mutants 58, cover date to December 1987. And joining me to discuss this live from upstate New York, it's Scott McGregor. Oh, now Western New York, please. This is a Midwesterner's <laughs> perspective, sorry. I'll allow upstate New York this time, but <laughs> yeah, this book brought back a lot of memories because I used to actively collect you know all the x books back in this era so i was gonna ask so would this have been something you were reading hot off the presses getting out of high school and uh you know working a job finally and stuff so i had a little extra scratch and still at mom's house so had even more scratch and so yeah i had (laughs) had a nice little comic habit going on from then till about the late 90s ish got very expensive after a while it does but luckily, these were back in the days of, of not too bad yet. Still 75 cents on the cover, man. That was that was kind of nice. Weren't those the days? Yes, indeed. Wow. I can't even imagine what my monthly habit would cost me now if I was still actively doing it. I, I was a very loyal X fan and, and grudgingly in some of the titles, and this was kind of one of them. I loved some of the stuff that the New Mutants did and a lot of the artists that, that were on it and writers and... Uh, I had forgotten that this was a, a Louise Simonson um, mm-hmm. issue, actually, so that was very cool. And I remember it brought back to mind Brett Blevins, too, which I haven't seen that name in many years. I've <laughs> uh, had a few of these early New Mutant titles, but I was never fully into X-Mania. And if I'd had a few of them, if so, I was way out of the title by the time this issue came around. Maybe I enjoyed it more as an 18-year-old um, by... What, going back and reading this, it was just a little boring to me uh, <laughs> this time around. And I remembered the plot line, and the plot line was a little silly. And I, I actually came up with some some ethical issues I have with what, what the New Mutants were doing in this one. Well, then let's let's talk about this. This brings yeah. us to New Mutants fifty eight, a bird in the hand, written as Scott said by Louise Simonson with art by Brett Blevins and Terry Austin. Let me give a very quick. Summary of the issue. The team is studying for exams, which I fully approve of, and consider that to be the highlight of the issue. (laughs) They are interrupted by Birdbrain and his antics. The team tries to subdue him with TV and food, which works for my wife, actually. Ileana breaks the rules and gets him a McBurger. The next morning, they're able to figure out that Birdbrain is from an island near Greenland. The team then gets him into one of their outfits and tailor it specifically for him. 
As the team sleep that evening, Birdbrain sees the moon out the window and breaks out. He goes to the burger stand and orders many burgers. Uh, just to add something to that, he did want fries with that as well. And a, <laughs> and a chocolate shake. Don't we all? The team finds him flying off with the food and figure he's taking it to his buddies back home. The team teleports to the island, figuring they'll just teleport back before Magneto even notices. They hear some strange noises on the island, find themselves surrounded by many animals of an evil, scary-looking disposition. So, Scott, tell me everything you know about Birdbrain. <laughs> wow, I... I blessedly almost forgot about him before I reread this issue. <laughs> but yeah, I, I I don't remember exactly how they came across Bird Brain. Right. It's the uh, New Mutants with E.T. slash Big Bird. And um, there is yeah. kind of a comics trope of the sentient, super-powered weird beings who will just make them our pet. Yeah. Which, it's which... not a good instinct. Particularly for, you know, uh, the X universe where diversity is supposed to be welcomed and you're in a safe place and, you know, everybody's accepted. And obviously they're trying to get him to speak and and Doug is always translating him. So they know he's intelligent, but yeah, they're treating him a little (laughs) less than human and or mutant in this. (laughs) Uh, You know, they they essentially got this weird being addicted to our American fast food and, and, you know, that's problematic too. I mean, could have gone just to a bait shop, got him some worms if they're going to go full bird on him, I suppose. (laughs) Now, on the cover, this promises that the fall of the mutants is coming. Yeah. Which, in fact, starts next issue. And this one did feel, to me, with my lack of bird brain familiarity, Mm -hmm. that this was sort of a treading water issue. Oh, yes, To get to the big story that's coming next month. X-Books do have downtime issues on occasion. It's mm-hmm. it's part of what they do. but It's part of what I like about them. Yeah, you know, right. I enjoyed about them. I like the dialogue-heavy issues that Claremont threw at us and, you know, the character building. So I have no problem with that. It was just, you know. If this is a hot new character find, then maybe in context there's some excitement or some, you know, we're learning about him. And as I said, I think I was sticking with this comic mostly because the X universe was starting to get into the bigger crossovers. So now the guest gets to render their judgment first. Okay, is it worth twenty five cents? Uh, I'm probably too biased because I mean it was my book back in that day, so absolutely yes. And you know I paid seventy five cents for it originally, so <laughs> you know even today I would have been like, oh yeah, Bird Brain, yes, I've got to read that again. And, you know. <laughs> Yeah. So for me, the New Mutants, generally not my taste. And this one really hasn't changed my mind on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah this is not the one to introduce a new reader to. Here's, oh, no. Now, if I saw a couple of the issues around this, certainly if I saw some Fall of the Mutants, if I could put it in context, I could definitely see how, how, how it could fit into that 25-cent standard. And like you said, the glory of this podcast is it's yeah. really hard to find a book that's not. But this is right on the edge. <laughs> as, <laughs> I was going to say that. <laughs> as you said, for a comic reader just picking this up uh, that had never heard of any of these groups or anything, uh, he's going to be really bored with it. It's going to look like kind of a weird, psychedelic Archie comic with Big Bird in the middle of it. 
Well, great to have your bird brain and new mutant expertise on this one. Oh, glad to do it, Alan. Thank you for having me on. And happy 100 shows. Thank you. understanding that you had these issues this series in your collection it still is in storage <laughs> did you purchase it live as it was coming out or was it something i new? did early to mid 2000s was my deep comic binge i blew so much of my money getting like 20 issues a month of various things <laughs> ah to be young again yeah I remember. I even remember seeing the ad for this and being like, oh, I'll pick up issue one, and I ended up getting the entire series. From some of your podcasting efforts, mm-hmm. I know that you like the horror stuff. So is that Not exclusively, but yes. Among your fandoms. Yes. So is, is that sort of part of what attracted you, caught your attention, do you think, to The Necromancer? Well, I mean, that, and I was also reading a number of other Top Cow things, and Josh Ortega, I had actually heard of his novel. It just looked cool. I, there were so many books that I wasted money on because, hey, that cover's cool. <laughs> yeah. You've my, all this been was, there, too. This was my binge into the comic world, and I hadn't quite learned realities yet. In this uh, episode 100, mm-hmm. 100 comics, and I confess there were about a dozen that I had never heard of. Mm-hmm. And these books, The Necromancer, are among that crowd. I did not have a clue about this one. Yeah, and Necromancer, I know it has its fans. It just, for some reason, it just never sold and never picked up. They even tried to bring it back when Topco did one of those pilot seasons that they do. And it was not one of the ones that was selected. They said we have issues four and six. It ran six issues, Mm -hmm. split into two, three-issue arcs. So we have the beginning and the end of the final arc. These are, as you said, both written by Josh Ortega and penciled by Francis Manipal. Mm-hmm. Uh, issue four was inked by Rob Hunter and Mark Prudeau, and issue six inked by Hunter and Austin Janowski. I'm going to run the synopses together, tell the beginning and the end of the story. Who, who needs all that middle part? You know, if you're going to get two parts of a three-part arc, the first and the last are the best way to go. So, and if, what I remember, though, is that both arcs are still also very intertwined, yes, too. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. We have 17-year-old outcast Abby Van Elstein. She's headed out to L.A. to seek a new life with her new guardian, a fellow named Locke, with a really cool walking stick. However, the Dark Agents have set their sights on her. She makes friends with a few folk at her new school, including Curtis who gets bullied by a demon into committing suicide. The demon's message 
God is a sadist. Later, after confronting Abby and leaving her beaten, which I think is what happened in issue 5, the demon Berzelius attempts to force her new friend Janice to commit suicide, because that worked so well in issue 4. But mm-hmm. Anna and Gabriel return time, and they cast a spell. And with Abby's super magic powers, they're able to defeat the demon, and after this victory, she becomes Locke's apprentice. Welcome to the hierarchy. So, Noel, you know this series. Your thoughts mm-hmm. on sort of this, this back half of the series? Well, my memory is so very cloudy in terms of like the stuff that I did, because I only read four and six reread. Right. My memory is a little cloudy on all the details in between, but I have to say, issue four, this could be an issue one all of its, all on its own. Exactly. She's meeting new characters in her life. She's, you know, it, it's almost a perfect introduction to the character. You have opening with her apparently committing suicide and the whole arc of the demon that causes suicides. It's a six-issue series. You could come in halfway through and still be hooked. And and it does seem like there's been some status quo change. Again, she's moved from, yeah. I guess, Colorado is where they started, I guess, the first three issues. And so they've moved out to L.A. So to some extent, it's sort of the second season, getting to the new school. So it actually does have a little bit of that feel. Yeah, it picks up kind of like a season two would be of, like, let's just kind of previously on. The, the first two pages are just kind of like, here's all you need to know. Let's move on. Josh Ortega, Francis Manipal. These are legitimate comics professionals. Mm-hmm. Top-line talents. Manipal's huge. I like the mix of sort of that teen girl friendship and demon fighting. This is in the mm-hmm. post-Buffy wake, you know, using yes. a similar template, but putting their own spin on it at the same time. It doesn't feel like a knockoff. It feels, it feels like no, it's it influenced, but it's not just a knockoff. Yes. I like the design of the demon. I like the sort of the suicide, you know, mm-hmm. being his his weapon in essence. You know, I thought that was sort of a, an mm-hmm. interesting take on it. I like the friends at the school. Mm-hmm. They all have their own personality quirks. I mean, they're secondary characters. We we don't get a lot with them. I will say, for not having heard of it, surprisingly strong. Hello. I think there's a lot more nuance to their art than a lot of people give them credit for. And I think what's nice about this book is. It draws her in a way that she actually looks like a real person. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's stylized, but it doesn't feel like it's ever... It, she's sexy, she's attractive, but it's never feeling like it's making her cheesecake. She feels cool, she seems like a cool person. I mean, even that kind of bustier top that she she has is a, a really cool top that I could see a lot of my friends being like, oh man, I want to own that, you know? Right. It, it doesn't feel ridiculous. That's actually a pretty good way to put it. As comic fans, we sometimes have to overlook, ignore, squint past the fact mm-hmm. that something is ridiculous or looks ridiculous. We've got mm-hmm. you know, a handful of these teen and high school characters. And as you said, they do seem to be wearing sort of real-looking clothing. I mean, even the lead, other than that top, is wearing jeans and sneakers, you know? Right. I mean, they're all wearing khaki pants or white pants or long sleeve shirts and things that look fashionable things that look real the thing is i don't think it's fantastic it's not stunning i can kind of see why it didn't really like hook a huge audience but i can see why it has a following and i would like to have read more kind of sad that it ended where it did i mean here's a question for you is is it enough that it would make you interested in reading the remaining issues yes yes 
especially, provided they're a quarter. Especially if I saw them at a good price. I think I know what we're going to say, but are these worth a quarter? It's a quarter bin steel. Definite quarter bin steels. And I'm not a horror guy, but these were dramas set in a horror universe. It wasn't horror that was about, like, gore or right. death or kills or anything. It was, it was an emotional. I mean, the fact that the demon is so tied to suicide, there was an emotional undercurrent to it. A large part of it is these are horrible things that happens in our lead character's life. The nice thing is that in issue six, the arc does come to a close. Mm-hmm. So there, there, is a, there is a resolution. Yeah. So, you know, if, if you pick up this six-issue run, you're not going to be left on a cliffhanger. Definitely one that I would be willing to uh, read the rest of. I gotta dig it out. Yes, you do. So, I definitely appreciate you joining me again and bringing your necromancer experience. Though, that sounds creepier than I intended. Just don't ask what that smell is. Thanks, Noel. Glad to have you on again. Glad to be on. Thank you. up we are heading into deep space the vegan star system to be precise books 61 through 64 are omega men 4 5 6 and 7 from dc comics cover dated july to october 1983 and joining me for this one is mr tom panarese hi how are you doing great so what is your connection to or history with the Omega Men? Aside from these four, which I got because of this podcast, I own two issues of the Omega Men. And the reason I own those two copy those issues, because they cross over with the Baxter series of the New Teen Titans. Uh, and my my familiarity with the Omega Men comes because of the New Teen Titans. Okay, I think the first time I actually knew what the Omega Men were was either uh, because of, I had read Crisis and maybe because I had been collecting who's who, the definitive directory of the DC Universe. And as we know from some of our podcasting buddies, the Omega Men are all over who's who. Yeah, so I'd known of them. Uh, the only two issues I own are those two that cross over. They're, I think they're from about 85. Todd Klein at that point was writing the series because I actually have – I actually went and got them signed by him. And since he's a letterer, uh, A, his signature on the book is is beautiful. I would hope so. And B, he used a silver pen to sign because it was a dark cover and, and it's – so like so clear that is the story where blackfire commandar comes to earth and kidnaps starfire and they cross over and only honestly i think that storyline comes out like right before this series started right that makes sense 
here and there, I would latch on to DC's science fiction concepts. I do like some Adam Strange every once in a while. There's just some story, fun stories I've read there. Legion of Superheroes is a title that I keep meaning to go back and really start collecting. Like I had a decent run of it at one point. I sold it without really reading it thoroughly. Yeah. For me, this is a title that should work for me, but I could never really get into it. I was moving a little bit into the, the independence and some black and white books here as I was heading off to college, but I was still reading the Legion warlord. Mm-hmm. All-Star Squadron, New Teen Titans, The Flash. And I was still reading mainstream DC books, but this one just never reached out and grabbed me, you know? Yeah. All right, well, I'm going to run the synopses together because they all do tell parts of an ongoing story, The Citadel War. In the days long before the phrase writing for the trade was coined, that's pretty much what this series was doing. (laughs) All of these issues were written by Roger Slifer, with art by Keith Giffen, Mike DiCarlo, and Todd Smith. Callista has been abducted by Lobo. Yes, that Lobo. That Lobo, yes. And turned over to the Citadel. Meanwhile, Primus is being challenged for leadership of the Omega Men by Tigor, who looks like a tiger. (laughs) To make matters worse, this challenge and the ensuing fight is all being choreographed by Demonia. She's a bad guy, too. As she tries to betray the Omega Men to the Citadel. The Omega Men, led by Tigor, attack the Citadel. He aims their ship right at a Citadel ship. And by a trick involving the hyperdrive, he's able to pass through the Citadel. Ahead lies the fortress. In the blink of an eye, Tigor's plan becomes clear. Bombs placed on every connecting link of the fortress are activated. But in destroying the Citadel's secret master, the complex complex, (laughs) have they become as violent and corrupt as the empire they've overthrown? And in the aftermath, Oron learns the secret origins of Exal, Nimbus himself, and the complex complex. Tom, your thoughts. Giffen, I don't know if it's the art or the writing. I mean, there, there's a lot of space battle, but they're so tightly drawn into the panels that it's, it feels almost, for a space battle, it feels claustrophobic, which is hard to do. It doesn't have that grand sweep that epic feel that you want. And we kind of get that in number six. Seven is odd. Seven's like, let's take a break from the story and go back and do a flashback episode about the origin of, of Zal, the goddess. It's placed here as the epilogue, but the story it tells is the prologue. Which is to me was like, well, shouldn't you have flipped this with maybe number eight? Although I never read number eight. And I knew her origin already because of the history of the DC universe. A lot of this Omega Men Vegan system stuff is detailed in there. And I think that's where I'm pretty familiar with it. Yeah, between that and, like we said, who's who, DC was really trying to make the Omega Men the next big thing. Yeah. 
And that's an effort that was not ultimately successful. I don't think this was the first direct market series that DC did, but it's one of the first. And I want to say it's the first ongoing. I want to say up until that point, most of their direct market stuff had been mostly miniseries. And it's about a year after this, you get the big launch of the two big guns into the direct market only, which is the Titans and the Legion. Ah, right. So maybe they were promoting this or trying to make this happen because they were testing that market. I was not really familiar with any of these characters. What are your thoughts there? They really want Tigor to be Wolverine. I mean, (laughs) there's so much Logan in him. And the X-Men would have issues in space that almost do kind of, and uh, Dave Cockrum drew a lot of those back in the early 80s. I don't know why Colonel Clink is working with the Citadel. (laughs) Hold on. Oh, wow. Um, I crack up seeing Lobo here because Lobo, he's got like a purple. It's not like a fro. It's like a that sort of 70s like Italian guy, like Travolta-esque hair. And he it almost looks like he's wearing kabuki makeup. He's basically whitewashed. In some way, it's a very odd appearance, and he's got, like, Metamorphose uniform or something on. It's, like, purple and and stuff. So it's not the main man, as we'd come to know him in the 90s, but it is Lobo. For me, those first few issues, 4 and 5, were a bit of a struggle, as it was more character stuff, more emotional stuff. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't know who these folks were, you know? Yeah. But by the time we got to the space battle stuff... I could totally follow that. Mm-hmm. And and I thought that that part was very well done. I thought it was very well explained and well choreographed, well staged. That was thought through very well. Very Star Wars-esque. But you do need the other issues to understand. Like it, It's hard to pick up a random issue of this book and really follow what's going on. Maybe it's just me, but there's something about the printing process and the paper that even 30 plus years later uh, are are you reading off of paper or off digital i am reading off the digital for me these colors uh-huh are a little hard to take they're a bit assaultive to the eyes i've no- it's so vivid in the mid 80s they they had the regular paper They have this sort of mid-grade paper called Mondo paper that never looked good. And then they have Baxter paper, which was what these were printed on. And this is like kind of the early Baxter stuff. But I always found that unless you have somebody who has very heavy inks, the art always looks a little off. Because there's something about the Baxter paper where the art looks almost like it's sitting on top of everything. Right. And it doesn't get absorbed into the paper the way it does. And so the coloring looks off and the coloring looks too bright. I mean, give them credit. Over 30 years, it hasn't faded one bit. Yeah. and the But that still doesn't make it easy to read. And to their credit, the lettering is clear. You've had that problem probably looking at old comics where the lettering, it'd be like the, the, the ink ran or something like that. So... But I think you're right. The the, the coloring uh, now, in, in some ways, I think it's an adjustment because we're used to from from comics these days. We're used to a certain look, but I think you're also right about the color process. 
I, I, this is me talking about, out of my, you know what, but I think they were using a very similar coloring process for all the books. So it's going to lose a little bit if it's not inked very heavily or, or, you know, the flaws show a little bit easier. I got to say though, I will take the Baxter paper or maybe that sort of mid-grade paper that they eventually had. It was, it felt like paper, paper, not newsprint over that glossy paper. Now, maybe it's just because my age now starts with the number five. <laughs> but with that glossy paper, if I don't have the light at the right angle or if I have the book at the wrong angle, it can be pretty tough to read. Well, the other thing I noticed with the glossy paper is that I was reading um, Bought on the Cheap. I got it out of a $5 trade bin, The Trial of Superman. And that was done with the glossy paper. And I guess they were that was where they were trying new coloring techniques. And the coloring just does not do well with the art. So it's it's it is interesting to see like how the comic companies have like really struggled with um, adapting their methods to the changes in in printing technology. We do need to circle back around and talk about what happens in that origin issue, issue seven. Issue seven has Oron and this space rape, and it's really you know I wonder if it's one of those things that. Because that part of the story is taking place back in ancient times. Yeah. We can almost excuse that or allow for that. It's kind of the George R.R. R. Martin effect. Mm-hmm. If you make a faux medieval type of time. Yeah. Where this activity we know happened, that if you put it in that setting, that's almost a way that it can be acceptable. Yeah, like, she's like, please, no, not again, leave me alone. And you're like, I'm, I'm reading this, I'm like, oh, wow. And I, and I totally understand what you're saying about it's, a, it's medieval, or it's like, you know, I mean, how many women did Zeus rape in, you know, in Greek mythology, and you know, and things like that. So it's understandable, but at the same time, I'm like, wow. You know, they're basically doing genetic experimentation, and... Back when this book was written in 1983, there was not a lot of in vitro or test tube babies. Mm -hmm. So I think for a writer to sort of get at that type of activity, you almost have to do it the old-fashioned way. Yeah, and and now we have more techniques of cloning and genome mapping and those sorts of things. And the scions, they hear and in other places, come off to me as, like, the Dr. Mengele of the DC universe. Like, they're this sick, twisted race that wants to experiment and do all these awful, cruel things to whatever they can get their hands on. I've always liked that as a character. Because it takes the alien abduction stories we've all heard, and then it ramps it up by having it be this, like, mad sadistic scientist race you know this they they're not they want they're not trying to harm you in the sense that they're doing this maliciously they just want to do their experiments and if someone gets hurt in the process that's just too bad and that's actually pretty scary if you think about it well we've gotten here the guest always has the honors were these issues worth 25 cents i'm going to hedge and say if you can get maybe the first eight in a quarter bin, three is probably the one that's actually worth money out of them because it is the first appearance of Lobo. Maybe they're worth the quarter because you're getting a full storyline at once. And if that's eight, that's two bucks. Yeah. Standalone, 
That's a tougher proposition. I did read these all in one sitting because I was like, oh, here's the next chapter. And they, they do read pretty slowly, too. They're pretty densely written. This isn't a Bendis comic. There's a mythology behind these characters that was built up before they even hit their first issue. You can do that without knowing that, read this without knowing that stuff. But yeah, I don't think I'd pick this up issue by issue unless you knew you were getting the next one. I, I would try to chunk this out. Yeah, I think that if you want to jump into a space opera, mm-hmm. a comic book series of a different sort, the Citadel War isn't a bad place to start. Yeah. It is a little dense, like you said, Tom. It has a lot of characters, but that doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah. You might not be able to find number three, but if you can find the rest of them for a quarter, take a shot at it. Yeah. If you're more in tune with, I just want some general DC sci-fi, I would go more toward the Green Lantern of this day, um, or just go back to the Legion of Superheroes, that sort of stuff. That might be more worth the individual issue from here and there. I don't know where the title goes from here, but spoilers, we'll be revisiting the Omega Men in part five or six of this mega-sized episode 100. All right. Tom, it's always great to chat with you. Good to have you on the episode. Oh, thanks for having me. This was fun. Paying our six fifty, taking our taxi ride back into Metropolis. Books sixty five and sixty six are Superman: The Man of Steel, forty two, and sixty from DC Comics, covered it in March nineteen ninety five and September nineteen ninety six. And joining me for these is the fan of Steel, Michael Bradley. Welcome hey, back. everybody! Thank you. Now, we've already talked about your origin story Mm -hmm. as a Superman fan. Just how about this era? Were you reading these off the shelves here here in the mid-90s? Yes. Um, Last time I talked about I picked up a comic at a flea market. That comic was from the uh, Funeral for a Friend era. So I, like a lot of people, kind of got in at the Death of Superman era. And then I had read I read Superman uh, all the way up, you know, every month or every week, depending on when it was, till about 2014 or 15. These things like the New 52, mm-hmm. these things that are great jumping on points, are also <laughs> great jumping, great jumping off, off points. points. Yep. And I did stick with the New 52 for you know a little Sounds while, like a couple of years, yeah. Yeah, and then I I just finally stepped away from it. Well, what we have here, the story in issue 42 is Love Bites 2 by Louise Simonson with art by Michael Dutkovich and Dennis Yankee. Locke's power have gone awry and he almost steals a baby. Superman promises to help Locke control his connection to the dimension called the beyond. The vampire babe babe (laughs) creative tells Jimmy that she needs help controlling herself. Superman, Jimmy, and Locke begin to suspect that an old vampire is possessing Babe. Together, Locke and Babe are able to control the corridor to the beyond, trapping the vampire there. Your thoughts on vampires? I mean, on this (laughs) storyline, this issue, 
Mr. Michael. Well, this issue is the last chapter in the story for both of these characters, so it's kind of a weird place to come in. And at times this feels more like a Locke story than a Superman story. So if you're coming into this comic having not read a lot of Superman from this era, I can understand how you're going to leave disappointed because Superman just doesn't do a lot. But all that said, I enjoyed it for what it was. There was some suspense and a nice action-heavy ending, and it kept me entertained for 15 or 20 minutes, however long it took to read it. So, little too much Jimmy Olsen for me. <sighs> now, folks who know you as a podcaster and a comics guy know that you're not just a Superman fan. You, you, you don't mind the Batman either. And I like Batman when he deals with the supernatural-ish sorts of threats, but I'm not so sure how I feel about Superman dealing with vampires, etc. It is a weird fit. Like Batman fighting aliens, Superman taking on the supernatural, just it's, it's not a natural thing that goes together. In issue 60, we have Shattered Lives by Louis Simonson again, with art by John Bogdanov and Dennis Jank, who I pronounced differently a minute or two ago. This, this is part two of the three-part The Bottle City storyline. And in it, Tolos uses the Daxamite Silgand and his little buddy Tupperneep to fight Superman. And they have a pretty great throwdown. But Gan gets transported back to Kandor before Superman can finish pummeling the guys. Perry tells Alice that he has cancer and Keith overhears, and Clark's one true love, Lori Lamaris, buys him a late dinner at the office. Now this was a comic book. This it's, one it's... had a story, it had character <laughs> development, it had a fight scene, but yes. it had subplots, it had everything. And it's really indicative of what's so strong about Superman in this era, because not only do you have that good action scene of, or, or fight scene, you've got the writer bringing back a very Silver Age concept in the Bottle City of Candor, but giving it a kind of a post-crisis spin. And then you've got all this really character-driven and forward-moving plot stuff with Perry's cancer diagnosis and just little character stuff with Clark and Laurie Lamaris. And, and even the way the, the Silgand is written, he's written as more than just a big brute that Superman has to punch. Yeah, I liked all those subplots. And we've got uh, Keith, who has just been adopted... Mm -hmm. by the whites and the tension that he feels and his concerns and, and worries and like I said Perry becoming sick it's got a little bit of everything yeah and it's tough sometimes the middle story of a series sometimes just has the action not much plot happening in it mm -hmm. and you do get a heck of a fight scene but you do get other stuff around it like yes like you said now, this is a comic. <laughs> I was going to go back and reread the first and third chapters, uh, but then I didn't because I decided I kind of wanted the experience of just having this issue, right. uh, like I presume you did. Yes. So I don't know how much of that Perry stuff was played up in the first and third chapters of the story. I know the mm -hmm. Perry White cancer thing went on several years. It's just right. the beginning of it. But uh, but yeah, it's nice to have that kind of character stuff in the middle there, so it's not just all the action in the middle chapter. But for the middle story of an arc, 
this one told its own little story, and that was mm-hmm. and that was good. You know, something else I noticed just now, looking at the two main protagonists in these issues, as far as their shirts go, they have very similar fashion sense. They got the deep V. Yeah, deep V. Yeah, <laughs> it must have been a thing in the '90s, and I just entire totally missed it. Little something for the ladies. <laughs> Come on. Jimmy Olsen's not enough. <laughs> the guest has the honors. We can do these separately or together if you'd like. Are these issues worth 25 cents? Yeah. I, you know, I would say the, the issue 60 is a definite quarter bin steal, and the other one will round up and give it a quarter bin deal. Problem is 42 as Jimmy Olsen. Wait, really? did, you, did you say problem? Uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> And 60 has Lori Lamaris, the greatest character ever. So it's kind of no comparison. I'll let you have both. Okay. 42, yeah, it it meets the criteria. It's hard for a book not to. And Man of Steel 60 just blows by that. Yes. So if you put them together, like we did, you know, it it averages out. Uh, Thanks again for... uh, Jordan and me, Michael, always good to talk Superman with you. Thank you for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Next up, back to Marvel, book 67 is New Warriors number 19 from Marvel Comics, cover dated January 1992. And joining me to talk about this book, it's Blaine Dowler. Oh, thanks for having me aboard. What is your general history with the X books here in the early 90s? In this era, my comic collections were basically the classic X-Men which was the first mm-hmm. superhero stories I, were collect- I was collecting. So I was reading the Claremont Byrne era. Uh, that and a cool cover led me into reading The New Mutants. And some friends of mine recommended The New Warriors, so I picked up some of those, mm-hmm. uh, partly because I had Speedball number one, because that was an era where you know everyone was saying, if it's an issue number one, it's going to be worth something. So I grabbed it exactly. off the spinner rack, knowing <laughs> nothing about what was in it started reading new warriors <laughs> and i'm glad i did the story in this issue is sympathy for the devil by fabian nicieza with art by mark bagley and larry malstead after learning of his ties to the taylor foundation the new warriors attack gideon but he defeats them by stealing their powers he imprisons them experiments with their powers and tortures them he wonders what gives them the good guys the right to invade his home. Meanwhile, the left hand recruits a killer, and Mrs. Cord visits her comatose husband in the hospital and flees in terror after she senses Ty's presence in the room. Gideon breaks Marvel Boy, who admits that they are no better than he is. After that, Gideon agrees to tell them everything that they want to know. And it's time to ask, what would Blaine say? <laughs> This is 
a decent story to read in isolation, and it's one I originally read in mm-hmm. isolation. I recommend if you're going to read New Warriors from this era, try to read the first 25 issues, because that's mm-hmm. the full Nicieza-Bagley collaboration. To me, that is right. the golden era of the New Warriors. Okay. Yeah, I was never really a Marvel person growing up. I leaned more on the DC side, and when I did dip into Marvel, it was a little Avengers, a little Iron Man, a little Cap. I have to say, New Warriors was a total blind spot. Basically, came into this particular issue with no knowledge of what was happening in the series, and was able to mostly sort of follow it. And I do think that's some of Bagley's storytelling skill. Not having a connection to the characters didn't help, but I certainly understood the basic drama that was happening in the story. The way Bagley depicts the emotions between mm-hmm. Marvel yes. and Firestar, you know they're an item coming into this cold. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. DCA's dialogue tells you that Speedball's the goof-off that the other team members don't respect by the time he's done the third panel of snowboarding. You know, they don't actually say Night Thrasher's the leader, but they say, well, Night Thrasher's plans have never led us astray before, so you know who's in charge. You know, one of the things about this, just as a one-off, is that there was a bit of a theme there, or at least a an, an interesting notion of what does give heroes the right to break in on someone's private abode. I didn't see a search warrant. And it sort of asked, in a comic book way, a sort of interesting question. The details of that are specific to this issue, but that's a theme Mm -hmm. running through the whole series. Actually, the first time we see a Marvel boy in the New Warriors series is when he decides he's going to join the Avengers. And he's basically told, no, you're not ready. But there's a lot of questioning about, are we really on the right path? But yeah, questioning the role of the hero and what makes you a hero and what gives us the right to do what we do is a major thematic element for these first couple of years. I do have to mention the design of the character Gideon. He has a somewhat non-standard haircut for a corporate CEO, which it seemed like he was. I mean, at least in our world, that was a non-standard CEO haircut. A long green ponytail, which comes out of one patch on his head. The hair he has comes in very thick. It's uh, it's quality over quantity. Yeah. There certainly are some 90s-ish tropes about this story, but I do think that one of the things Bagley does is maybe temper what in other hands might be extreme. I look at Gideon's designs and what he's wearing in X-Force where the world accepts him. I swear that Bagley looked at it and said, "Uh, that's not going to fly. I wonder if that is why Gideon is working out and in the hot tub when we first meet him. So that Bagley has an excuse to just put him in a house. <laughs> to the not time. draw. Yeah, right. <laughs> the guest gets to deliver their verdict first. New Warriors 19. Is this worth 25 cents? American, by the way. Well, let me put it this way. I lost my original comic collection. Didn't lose it. I gave it away when I figured I was done with comics. Ha. You went through one of those dreaded growing up phases, too? Yep. So uh, yep. I rebought this in a case lot from eBay. And knowing it was Professor Allen who invited me on it, I went back to the original order form from a few years ago and did the math. I paid 63 cents Canadian, including shipping, for 
each issue, and I think that was a bargain. It's well worth yeah. 25 cents or more. I agree. I mean, this, it was a pretty standard comic book, and it asked an interesting question or two. Definitely worth a quarter. Thanks for joining me on this one, Blaine. It is always good to talk to you. Oh, yeah. Thanks for having me back on. Next up, back to DC and back to the 80s. Book 68 is Vigilante 46 from DC Comics, cover dated October 1987. And joining me for this one straight from the Vigilante homepage and various Vigilante podcasts, it's Michael Bailey. Adrian Chase is my jam. (laughs) (laughs) Now, you are internet famous for your fandom of many different comic book properties, but I don't know your history with Vigilante. If there is any. There really isn't. Uh, My main exposure to the character was New Teen Titans Annual Number 2. For years, I have had a near-complete run sitting in my collection, but I've never really cracked it open to read it. But uh, this was an interesting book to read, and uh, it, like you said, you said we're going to the 1980s. Who yes, boy, yes, did we, we go to the 1980s? <laughs> yeah, I don't have a specific recollection of reading many, if any, vigilante issues either. But, you know, like you said, I must have run across him in other titles, because I do feel like I know him a little bit, and I do like his look. But, yeah, I don't know that I'd ever sit, sit down and actually read anything. <laughs> Until this. What I liked about this issue, and I'm not going to get into it right now because we haven't really gotten into the issue itself, but it's like somebody said, okay, we're going to do that type of character, but we're going to do it differently than than what the Punisher was. Well, our story here is Busted by Paul Kupperberg, with art by Todd Smith and Rick Burchett. Adrian Chase has been unmasked and arrested. The number that Valentina Vostok, a.k.a. Negative Woman, gave him to get him out of jams has been disconnected because her super-secret government agency has been shut down. A group of police officers, angry at Vigilante for being a cop killer, sneak into the jail to kill Adrian. Blackthorn, bummed that she got her boyfriend busted, disguises herself as a cop, unlike any I'd ever seen before, and heads in to free her man. All parties converge, and mayhem ensues. She is caught in the process only to find that Chase has already escaped, leaving more dead bodies behind. So what'd you think, Mike? I really enjoyed this issue. Uh, it, I kept hearing the equalizer theme <laughs> as I was going through and that's not a bad thing because no, that's, that you. is a I magnificent show. What I liked about this story is Paul Kupperberg was dealing with the legal ramifications of somebody waging a war like Adrian yes. Chase was and what it really means and, and how it affects everybody. You know, these cops are getting in over their heads to go get the revenge, especially the one dude's partner. 
it was kind of cool seeing Vostok. It's one of those things where, wow, Kupperberg just does not throw characters <laughs> yeah, away. That's right. That's right. Uh, and, I, and I thought that was kind of cool. It's just like, wow, what, what an interesting thing to mix into this. The whole thing with all the inmates coming after Adrian while he's in the shower, it was mm-hmm. just like, if you're going to do something to put your protagonist into a situation that is different than every other fight he's ever been in, you have him be naked and in the shower. Uh, and we see a lot of his behind in this scene. But no, I well, really... En- gotta earn that suggested for mature readers label somehow. <laughs> but I loved watching the cops come in and kind of screwing up and Blackthorn coming in and facing off against them. Right. And then, you know, everything comes down to going to where Adrian is and... He's out of his cell. The V is on the, on the is on the, the cell. on the wall of the cell, and he's just nowhere to be seen. And that's just, it's like, wow, this was really good. I just wasn't expecting this much to be going on. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got this secret government agency. You've got Blackthorn. You've got the cops. You've got Chase. You've got just a lot happening. And I, I wasn't expecting that Richa supporting cast and subplots and all of that for some reason. Yeah, because when you think of these books, especially the things that kind of followed The Punisher, mm-hmm. or tough guy books like you would get in right. the 90s, like Nomad mm-hmm. and stuff like that, where, you know, they were... Oh, listeners to episode 100 know <laughs> a lot about Nomad at this point. <laughs> Trust me. Up until this point, DC really didn't have bad boy characters. Right. They didn't have a Wolverine. But when you're presented with that type of character that's just going to gun somebody down, you really have to deal with it in a different way because the rules are different. The Punisher, as I said before, felt like movies. This feels like a Stephen J. Cannell or Stephen Bochco <laughs> produced television series. Mm-hmm. And, and and I liked that it was so involved. I liked that it was a really meaty read to see him so sure of himself and then not sure of himself right. because his failsafe mm-hmm. had fallen through. And then you have Vostok talking to her men and her men are basically like, we're dead. They're going to kill us. And, mm-hmm. and those cops upset that their partner's killed and they're going to go get justice because they feel like the DA isn't... Mm-hmm doing what he needs to do, what they need to do, and they're holding Adrian Chase. And I didn't know you could hold somebody for more than 48 hours yeah, without right. arraigning them. Uh, I, I'm i not a lawyer, but I have watched a lot of Law & Order, and that seems to be brought <laughs> up a lot. But just to see them going into the prison and then realizing that they're kind of screwing this up, it makes me want to read all of Paul Kupperberg's run, really, yeah, yeah. in all honesty. That's, that's what this issue did, was just like, wow, I need to read more of this because there's a lot going on. Well, I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this one, but we have to run ourselves through the formality. Mm-hmm. Was this issue worth 25 cents? Oh, this issue was definitely worth 25 cents. Absolutely. Like I said, there's a lot going on here, and most of it is pretty good. Comic book professionals doing a professional job. I think we're getting near the end of the title. This is 46. I want to say it only went to 50 or into the early 50s, maybe. But I'll be honest, I would be kind of curious to see how this ends. 
I at least want to see where he went. <laughs> That's right. And and maybe even some of the things leading up to how we got mm-hmm. to here. Yeah, this would uh, I think this would be a good trade paperback to put out. Mm-hmm. You know, now that DC is reprinting everything. <laughs> Thanks for joining me again, Mike. It's always good to talk to you. Uh, pleasure as always, sir. Anytime you you need something, you just pick up that phone. <laughs> Next up, we are moving boldly back into the 21st century. Book 69, The Death-Defying Devil, number three. From Dynamite, covered it in April 2009. And joining me for this one, it's J. David Weeder. Yes, me. You know me from the internet. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome to the podcast, Dave. Well, thanks so much for having me. Now, we know that you love... The Daredevil Matt Murdock. Mm-hmm. But has your fandom or investigation ever brought to your attention the 1940s character with the same name? It has by way of W. Blaine Dowler, who did a guest spot. Oh. And mm-hmm. you can actually find uh, you can find so much at the Digital Comics Museum. And I was able to to, to read some of his his early adventures. Because that, that is who we're talking about here. A, a variation of that original daredevil just going under the name as we said for legal and uh, trademark purposes as the death defying devil yeah i could not find a title for this story but it was plotted and art directed by alex ross scripted by joe casey and drawn by edgar salazar we get some flashbacks to the history of the death defying devil and his crew along with info about the origins of the Deadly Claw organization and the Devil's new nemesis, the Dragon. In the modern day, Devil, Justine, Silverstreak, and the Ghost go to Hong Kong to prevent Claw terrorists from blowing up a particle accelerator, I think. What did you think of this one? I was lost. And I even bought the entire miniseries. Uh-oh. I read the f- previous two issues, and I was lost. There's This is apparently part of a larger crossover called yes. uh, Project Superpowers. Mm-hmm. I s- borrowed some of that synopsis from the inner tubes. As well you should. <laughs> I was going to struggle coming up with something on my own. <laughs> Other than the fact that he's going up against something named the Claw. Yeah, there was a Golden Age villain. I know who they're referring to. Yes. I don't understand completely the context, and that's bad storytelling. I did like the Silver Streak, SS, mm-hmm. on his chest, just so you know who he is. I like the ghost. I liked, I guess there was a, there's sort of an anti-Daredevil, yeah. anti-Daredevil <laughs> in a slightly, a slightly different costume. Plot-wise, it was a little bit confusing. The art's not bad. As you said, the characters no. are interesting looking, but it's just it's just a, a part of a whole. And I I just find that frustrating. Yeah. yeah. Because you could open up a Marvel comic in, in the 80s even, when I was a kid, 
and kind of at least have a, an understanding of what you were doing, what you were mm-hmm. reading. This doesn't even try. <laughs> well, let's talk about this guy's look, at least. He's got the bodysuit with sort of the alternating blue and red trunks, leggings, and torso, chest area. And the big mega spiked belt. Mm-hmm. That was part of his original look. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I like that because I like symmetry. And this right. makes mm-hmm. great use of that symmetry. Right. So the look and the boomerang weapon I really like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The concept is great. I just don't entirely follow the execution. I don't get this version of it, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Think about 2009. Dynamite was a relatively young company. Mm-hmm. And they're doing, they've done some great things since then with licensed works. Mm-hmm. Zorro was the first one that comes to mind. So this was their first foray into universe building. Right. And the thing about universe building is you have to have some point to grasp onto. Mm-hmm. If you just open this book, you don't have that point. Yes, these are nice looking characters, but you don't even know where the other parts of the story are. There's no checklist. And I know that's a little bit lazy in the age of the Internet. But at the same time, everything in your marketing should be in the product. Right. right. I mean, it was weird. As I said, there wasn't even a title that I could find. Mm-hmm. So they are treating it as not even one chapter, Mm-mm. you know, but as 20 pages of a larger whole. So it's strange, strange. Give you an idea. Again, I read the first two issues, read this, and then I was done. I read it for the show and I was done. I didn't go into the conclusion mm-hmm. because I had no investment. Well, then I think I'm going to know the answer to this question. You get to deliver the verdict first. Is this issue worth 25 cents? No. You know what I will recommend, actually? Look for a miniseries that I see in the quarter bins often called Alter Ego. Yes, it's mm. the same as the magazine because it's written by Roy, Roy Thomas. Thomas. It does something mm-hmm. similar to this, but does it well. Pulls back in some Golden Age characters. Mm-hmm. So if you see that in the quarter bin, use your shiny head of George Washington to, <laughs> to invest in that. It's always difficult whether to recommend or not recommend a single issue of a mini or of a story. But I appreciate you uh, taking a couple more for the team. Yes. (laughs) And really giving us the context there. I like your advice. Go look for something else. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dave. I appreciate that. Great to have you on the episode. Thanks for having me. Next up, we're heading back to Metropolis. Books 70 and 71 are action comics 715 and 717 from DC Comics, cover dated November 1995 and January 1996. To talk with me about these books, it's Paul Spataro. Welcome back to the Quarterman. Uh, it's my pleasure to come on every centennial or so. <laughs> 125, 150, 175, and 200. I got it. We got it. I'm re- I got the dates already checked off on my calendar. <laughs> when it comes to comic books, maybe it's just because of Back to the Bins, I think of you as more a generalist. Someone willing to read everything, liking, liking a little bit of everything. So I don't know that I've heard you talk about your reading history as it concerns Superman. 
Well, I mean, I'm a generalist, but I am certainly more focused. You know, I've made no bones about it. My focus is mostly Marvel Bronze Age. But Superman is probably my earliest comic book exposure. Yeah, except, I, I think that's a lot of people's stories. Oh, yeah. Except I wasn't Spider-Man. really exposed to him in comic books. <laughs> my <laughs> first true. exposure with Superman was George Reeves. I, I couldn't even tell you what at what age I started watching it. Five, six, seven, somewhere along there. They used to show... The Adventures of Superman on WPIX Channel 11 <laughs> every afternoon. And I would sit with my brothers and we'd watch it. And, uh, you know, I, I grew to love the character from that. And I still to this day love that show, although my kids kind of look at me like I'm a little weird when I put it on. Um, <laughs> before I was a comic collector, I had read a number of Superman issues. I remember sitting, my mother took me somewhere, you know, she was doing something, but I was little, so I had to come along for the ride. And I remember sitting there with a Superman comic and reading it over and over and over again. But I still, to this day, couldn't tell you exactly which one it was, (laughs) despite all those reading. Superman is certainly on the foundation of my comic book knowledge. You know, as you said, I think that's true for a lot of people. And a lot of people have very, very strong opinions as to what Superman should be. And I I honestly don't mean that towards anybody in particular. I I think there's quite a few people in our circle who have very strong feelings about it. And and if they see it done in a way that they don't like, they don't really appreciate it. And I would probably say I'm a little more forgiving than that, but I totally understand that perspective. And... I lean in that direction. I don't think I'm totally in that direction, but I think I lean that way too. I I don't like when I see the character mishandled. What qualifies as mishandling can be a pretty personal determination. In this era of Superman, this is following the death of Superman and his resurrection. And one of the first things they did was to have him come back. And, you know, there's that forever debate as to whether he had a mullet. Uh, (laughs) But he came back with long hair in a way that was stylish to the time, whatever you want to call it. I I really don't care if you call it a mullet or not. That always kind of irked me a little bit because I thought Superman doesn't worry about style. To me, there's almost a little bit of a James Bond attitude, even though, you know, Superman's so so much more of a down-home type person. But he's not going to follow the trends so much as he's going to make set the trends. Right. In particular, when these books came out, he had been around 60 years pretty much. And is probably going to be around another 60 years. He really doesn't need to keep up with the, the fads of the day. I could understand back then where they might think, okay, this is something that's going to be, you know, it's going to have a shelf life of some sort. At this point, having a situation where we could easily foresee Superman's 100th birthday coming up and mm-hmm. it still being yeah. a big deal. Mm-hmm. I think the writers of Superman should understand that he, that when you're writing a book, you don't want it to seem dated down the line because it's going to still be available down the line. Right. You know, that's certainly a change in approach, too. You know, for older school writers who may have come up a few decades back, that was less true. Certainly, as as we're moving into this phase, you have to realize that what you're writing now will be read in 20, 30, 40 years. Easily available. That's a different approach. I remember back in the day when they would kind of recycle stories. You know, three or four years would go by, and right. they'd say, "Okay, we could do this." Not not reprint the story, but just do it over again, <laughs> because we think we have a whole new readership in. That really didn't turn out to be true, but that right. was the mindset at one mm-hmm. time. Mm-hmm. And it sounded like you bought these two issues 
when they were live and fresh on the shelves? Yeah, I did. Uh, this this followed my comic book hiatus, which was mm. from the sometime in the mid to late '80s, and I was brought back into it by the uh, siren call of the death of Superman. Mm, there you go. Okay, that which I, I that's a common story. I think there's others who probably have the same uh, experience. But I, I remember uh, there was actually the apartment I was living in at the time actually had a comic book store right around the corner, just you know, literally just around the corner. And uh, I, when I realized that, I popped in there one day and, you know, even though I wasn't collecting anymore, and then I saw what was going on and it was like, uh, you know, you guys, uh, you know, you set books aside. It set me aside two issues of every Superman that comes out because I knew they were doing the death thing. And right. the, the two, though, was not for, uh, you know, I wasn't planning on sending my future children to college with it. It was <laughs> The two was because I had a nephew who was under 10 years old and I every every week when I would visit my sister, I would bring him the latest issue, but I had to have a, a clean copy for myself. And that nephew is going to be married next week or two in two weeks in Cancun. <laughs> Mercy, so, time flies. Huh? Time doesn't keep moving on us. <laughs> well, let's let's look at these two issues. Both of these were written by David Michelini. Issue seven fifteen, Doc Parasite, was drawn by Gil Kane and Denis Rudier. At Star Labs, Dr. Torval Freeman learns that the parasite has been released from within him. Luther admits to a shadowy figure that he brought about this situation. The parasite absorbs the life essence of a Star Labs co-worker and soon finds himself in an internal dialogue with Rudy Jones, the original persona of the parasite. And while this is going on, Superman is just pretty much chillaxing. Perry White assigns Clark to Star Labs to cover a radiation leak, but Superman heads there instead and is very surprised to find the parasite, who he realizes right away is someone different. The Centurions, otherwise known as Team Luther 2.0, arrive on the scene along with the SCU. Superman falls into the clutches of the parasite who drains his power and his life essence to be continued. I'm not going to lie, Paul. I think the Parasite is an underrated and underused Superman villain. And I kind of dug this. I'm going to back you up on that because I actually kind of dug this story too. See, I'm not sure over the years how much Parasite has been used. I'm I'm very familiar with him, so I would think he's had enough exposure. It's not that you know you can't get enough issues with him. I'm not usually a fan of the "Hey, someone else is taking up the mantle of this villain," right? Uh, which I think usually falls very flat. In this instance, I kind of liked it because the original Parasite is involved. It it makes sense the way the story is presented. And while this is later in life, Gil Kane, I still like the artwork here as well. Uh, I could do it without Superman in his uh, drawers. Actually, kind of naked Superman there yeah, for a moment yeah. also, which I, I could have done without all of that. He, I, I, he, he was taking a day off, it did seem. Yeah, we didn't, but we didn't need to see him changing clothes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we need to throw in a little, a little something for the ladies, Paul. <laughs> But I, I like the story. I like the way the new parasite kind of outthinks the old one because the old one was always presented as a, right. you know somewhat of a simpleton. Yeah. 
And and the new one is, you know, a professor and he basically outthinks Superman, which is I'm sure for all professors out there is a you know, a blow for society. <laughs> I mean professors as villains, isn't that a little overplayed at this point? Come on. All we have on the hero side is Indiana Jones, it seems like. <laughs> I mean that's not bad, but that was in the nineteen thirties. Come on. <laughs> yeah, but if you could outthink Superman. All right, now because of the triangle numbering, even though we only jump ahead two issues, like ten issues of Superman continuity have happened by the time we get to 717, and we are dealing with a totally different scenario. Issue 717, Hatros City, was part nine of a 12-part storyline, The Trial of Superman. Art in this one was by Kieran Dwyer and Denis Rodier. And out in space somewhere, Superman wants to clear his new buddy, Mope's name. They arrive at an abandoned city floating in space, and traps spring all around them. And they're assaulted by Hatros warriors. The cyborg Superman is behind the attack, but his plans turn against him when the city explodes. Superman, unable to willingly let another being die, rescues the cyborg at the last minute, dooming himself and Mope to be returned to the tribunal for sentencing. Now, of course, jumping into the middle of a long story is tough, but what did he think of this one? This one I didn't dig nearly as much as I did the first one. Uh... This almost felt like another go-round with the same thing, only not as good. You know, okay, we're going to set up the story and then eventually have Superman in the perilous position at the end of this one and then continue it in Man of Steel. I don't know. It it, it just didn't feel like it had the same step-by-step plot that the other one did. This one just kind of felt a little bit more forced to me. And I don't it, know if it, that makes sense. And it, it, it did not seem to advance the plot. 22 pages later, they're pretty much in the same position as where they started. That's the whole thing. 22 pages went by, and that's what we've accomplished, that he was captured. I don't know who this guy is that he's trying to protect. I imagine somewhere in the first eight issues we would have learned that, but... That took away from you know some element of it because I didn't, I didn't feel invested in that character at all, and I didn't really mm-hmm. care what happened to him. In theory, I think I'd like the Superman in space type of stories, but you do realize that without the supporting cast and and they're included in a subplot here there on earth Mm -hmm. you know but without him interacting directly with them maybe that's a little bit of what's lost here that could be part of it maybe it's kind of a hindsight thing but the cyborg superman seems kind of played to me a little bit at this point right and maybe again Mm -hmm. maybe it's hindsight because i'm not sure exactly where this fell in the storyline with him so he may not have been quite as played out yet it still felt like more of, you know, okay, the same thing that we always see with him. We've talked on bins about Kieran Dwyer a few times, and we've had some issues that were good and some not cre- not really that good. The artwork in this issue seems very inconsistent to me. It, this, it, this one was a little bit more of a slog to get through, to yeah. be honest. I think there's a nice change of pace seeing Superman without his cape. Evidently, at some point in the storyline, he's lost his cape. Mm-hmm. And so I, th- I think you know there are a few nice nice scenes there. It's, it's obviously just a look you don't get very often. 
Now, this this guy that's with him, he's got kind of a purple. It, it almost looks like he tied something purple around his neck to uh, to look like Superman to kind of emulate yeah, him with be. a cape. Right, right. Which which is a nice touch if that's what it is. Mm-hmm. If it's not a real cape. Mm-hmm. The cyborg Superman, I think. I'm I'm just going back to him a little bit. I feel like when drawn well, he could be a very imposing figure. And I'm not crazy about the way he's drawn in this book. He's almost drawn as RoboCop with half a Superman head. <laughs> yeah. And it's not quite doing it for me. Mm-hmm. But yeah, basically a little bit of subplot and mostly with a punchy, punchy run, run. And we end with that close up of the guy's face. And I, I it says immediately, but I can almost hear it saying guilty. <laughs> and I guess that's supposed to be dramatic. I mean, he's saying the death sentence is to be carried out immediately. Now, we all know he's not dying in the next issue. But I guess, you know, at this point, and at virtually any point in Superman's career, except when they actually did kill him off for a little while, uh, the question isn't, is he going to die? The question is, how is he going to get out of this? Right. That's where I'd say it's successful, because that did pique my curiosity to the point where I may look to see how does this end. And sometimes when I find myself in that same position, I think, but 21 and a half pages, I didn't really like this. Am I mm-hmm. really going to get the let the last two panels trick me? Well, you know, <laughs> it depends on, it depends on how you're know? doing this. I, I actually have these issues, but I don't know if I ever read them. So I probably have the next issue, and I could probably just find it. So I wouldn't actually be paying anything for it. It would just be the time it takes me to dig out the comic and read it. Well, that's what I like to hear. That is progress. In that circumstance, I certainly could see saying, hey, I want to see how the story ends. Mm-hmm. I mean, time is money, but money is more money than time is, <laughs> just for what that's worth. <laughs> well, speaking of money, you get to render your judgment first, and despite – having paid the outrageous sum of $1.95 20 years ago. Are these issues, we can do them individually, or are they yeah, worth I think 25 Yeah, I think we do them individually because I have a different opinion on them. I'd say <laughs> the, that the first, the first book is absolutely worth 25 cents. Yeah. The second book, to me, is worth the 25 cents if you're getting this whole 10-issue run. Right. But if you're just getting this as a single issue, no, it is not. Yeah, Agreed. Like I said, I'm kind of a sucker for the for the parasite. His power set matches up well against Superman. Yeah. You have Superman, who's this in- insanely powerful creature, and then you have a villain whose power depends on siphoning power away from mm-hmm. you know, and and the more powerful the person he's siphoning the power away from, the more powerful he exactly. is. Exactly. So that's it's a perfect foil I- for him, and that's why I think it's ridiculous when people say Superman is too too strong to be written correctly. Mm-hmm. And when you when you think about it, this is all fiction. And <laughs> if you write a character that's powerful enough to to hold the sun in his hand, to come up with a viable threat, all you have to write is a, a character that's strong enough to crush the sun in his hand. <laughs> to hold you know the what sun I mean? in each hand. This isn't really that complex. It's not a matter of the power level. It's a matter of coming up with a, an entertaining storyline. And that's why I think when people say he's too powerful, it's it's just a total cop out. Thanks for joining me, Paul. It is always a pleasure to talk comics with you. I have to say the pleasure is absolutely mine. I'm glad you invited me to be part of a special episode. You bet.
Next up, it's Venom Time and his amazing friends. Book 72 is Nightwatch, number six from Marvel Comics, cover dated September 1994. And joining me for this one, straight from the heartland, it's Iowa's Joe Crawford. Hello, Professor. Good to talk to you again. You too. We got a dandy book today. We mentioned Venom, who is the guest star of the issue. So what's your history or general opinion of Venom? In the early days, I was mostly a DC kid. Um, Mm -hmm. And in this era, I was primarily Valiant and Superman. Maybe a pinch of Marvel and a pinch of Image. Not a whole lot of Venom. Most of my Venom exposure has come much more recently. My middle child found the uh, Venom Space Knight comic. And we actually read that one for quite a while until they changed artists. So that was the most Venom I've ever read was about the first eight (laughs) issues of Venom Space Knight with my my son Jonah. So a little bit of Venom history, not so much in this era, though. For me, yes, he's totally 90s-tastic. Right. But his underlying story, that's sort of always worked for me. And I, I do like the way that they've continued to use the Venom concept. It's like it's grown past its 90s origin. I would definitely say so. And they're doing some interesting things with it right now. And, you know, they've got a big event with it coming this summer. So he's definitely still relevant. Mm-hmm. Well, this story is Sins of the Future. It was written by Terry Cavanaugh with art by a pair of pencilers and a trio of inkers. And that never bodes ill for a story ever. Never. Dr. Kevin Trench is in San Francisco at Morell Pharmaceuticals to discover the secret of his sophisticated Nightwatch battlesuit. It just so happens that Venom is on the premises, fighting his own battles. They join forces to take on the Morel security goons, and Venom likes Nightwatch's style, except that he lacks that killer instinct. Nightwatch downloads the info about his suit, while the building self-destructs. He tries to get some info from the pretty doctor, Ashley Croy, but that doesn't work out so well. Back at his house, Kevin's uncle helps break the code on the file, revealing the details of the nanite-enabled supersuit, but his computer invasion somehow explodes his house? And at the corporate headquarters in New York, an unsuspecting employee is greeted by Cardiacs! <laughs> Because I'm pretty sure that's how you have to say it. Yeah, I think it's all caps with uh, some Stanley exclamations (laughs) at the end. Yep. So what did we think of this one? The art, real quick, and I know you're not an art person, but I just have to say it's amazing that one book can be so pretty on one page and then be so, what do you call it, 90s-tastic on others. (laughs) There's a close-up of the two on on one-page Venom and Nightwatch that is just gorgeous, and then the preceding pages, nothing to write home about. We had five artists, so maybe they did that (laughs) so there's no one to blame. Could be. But Nightwatch, uh, had you heard of this character before this? I had not. Okay, yeah, I was not familiar with him either. They kind of really throw you in which for this era was a little bit unusual to me, because usually I feel like you get a little more of a a life preserver when it comes to the start of an issue. But this one, it took me a few pages to get oriented, because I I couldn't quite figure out what's going on. And I'll tell you, and this obviously here at the 
two-thirds of the way, three-quarters of the way through issue six, this mm-hmm. was not meant to be a huge reveal. But the fact that Dr. Trench was an African-American character, that was something I wasn't expecting either. I don't know that I've ever seen you know, Nightwatch on a list of black superheroes from the 90s or, or, or whatever. Right. And, you know, that's something that is interesting in general to me, that whenever it seemed like this era had an African-American character, they always had a mask. Because you think of him, mm-hmm. you think of Spawn, right. you think of Prowler, right. and they're, they're always masked. So that is interesting. I mean, he, and is it, covered, he is covered head to toe. Even when he gets horribly injured, there's a scene with his hand that's just been trashed. You're still only seeing gauntlet. You're not seeing right. any flesh. Right. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. That's a good observation there. The thing with this one to me is once you got into it, it got a little more interesting and intriguing. This is definitely an issue. I think a little bit of background would have been helpful because right. the idea that he's trying to find out why he ran across his dead body is a pretty cool thing. <laughs> That's not bad. That is not a bad hook. You might want to mention that like on page one. Right. And if I think if it had been hooked a little bit sooner with that, saying like, okay, I just found my corpse. Let's go find this suit so this never happens and we can destroy it. It would have made a lot more sense, like a lot sooner. And that's either editing or the writing. I'm not sure. Because it, it took about halfway before I really felt comfortable with what right. uh, I had a handle on what was happening. In this 100th episode celebration, we've run into, no surprise, many books from the 90s. Much art and character design from the 90s, but it is hard to think of a more 90s character in look, and of course in name, than Cardiacs! <laughs> I would definitely have to agree with you. I, do I mean, quite I like... take, so the big bladed weapon is so scary that it causes heart attacks? That's I mean, gotta is, be what is it that is. Is that the deal? That, that has to be, right? And speaking of his introduction... I was totally lost. Those last two pages, when you get to Cardiacs, I didn't know what in the world was going on. Yeah, that obviously a subplot of some kind that right that you needed a little more issue one through five background. You know, I forgive a lot of '90s pouches, but when your primary weapon is some kind of electro blade, you don't need those pouches. <laughs> well, I mean, spare batteries. Oh, okay. So, Fair enough. I mean, if you just think about it. That that would be quite a few uh, D batteries, I would imagine. <laughs> I mean, the other part of the the technology stuff, and you know, I poked at it in the in the synopsis, but breaking into a corporate database does not right. enable them to remotely send you a file that a sets your computer literally on fire, and then sets your house on fire. <laughs> right. But I mean, scary's '90s technology, I guess. Well, wasn't that a thing, the idea that your modem could be blown up remotely? Right. Yeah, and I'm sure there was a movie or two that was made with that. I mean, it it was dramatic. It was. You know, but, but poking away at this, there is some fun to it. And there's some interesting underlying story happening, too, I think. I would agree. And, you know, you introduced it as a Venom book. He definitely, I think, gets a lot of the highlights. Yeah. Uh, you actually get to see a little bit of his psyche and the fact that this guy is, while quite violent, trying to do the right thing. And right. he definitely has a moral code because he's quite upset with Nightwatch and how he treated uh, the Ashley character. Mm-hmm. There's something to be said there. So to me, this is a tough one, but you have the honors. Is this issue worth 25 cents? I will say that this issue is probably worth the initial quarter. 
should someone come along and take this from my collection, I'm not paying a quarter again. How's that? <laughs> you know, I hate to say this, but there were enough parts of this that I enjoyed. That's fair. It is big, stupid fun. Right. But it's fun, I thought. Uh, there's a chance that if I found some more of these 12 issues of Nightwatch cheap, I might pick them up. Not I'm all that definitely interested. with you there. I, mean, I will have to get over Cardiacs. Right. In issue seven, I might skip that one if I run across it. But I'm kind of intrigued by the underlying story. I definitely would pick up the first couple because the whole story about finding his own corpse and what that does to one, that interests me. So, yeah, if you found like the first, I don't know, three or four issues in a, for a quarter, I think that would definitely be worth picking up. This is one of those because it was so out of context for me. It's It's right on that line. It's close, and maybe it's because of low expectations. That's always... I mean, that's certainly helped. I think even with Cardiacs, this may just be <laughs> worth a quarter. <laughs> I think Cardiacs probably pushes it over the edge for you. I think so. I, I can't stop talking about them. I think this is going to end up in somebody's mailbox missing that final page, because it's probably <laughs> going to be posted on the uh, wall. Hello! You said you were in for Cardiacs cast? When that there gets we go. up and going next summer? Okay, got it. Let's hope he's got more than, like, two appearances. <laughs> It'll be a limited-run podcast, but still. Oh, thanks for joining me. I was Joe. Great to have you on the show again. Thanks again. And once again, congratulations on 100 episodes. It's, it's been fun as a listener, and it's been great to participate as well. Thank you. Wraps up my coverage of 18 more issues of comics I got from Grab Bags, bringing part four of episode 100 to a close. And part five of episode 100 will cover another 18 or 19 comics. Books that will be covered in part five include, but are not limited to, Morlocks, number three, Captain Thunder and Blue Bolt, two and three, Steel, 14, Titans, number 2, and New Gods, 10 and 11. Guests joining me on part 4 of episode 100 include, but are not limited to, Paul O'Connor, Dr. Ange, the generous Canadian, Rob Lance, Dave Walker, and the irredeemable Shag. I want to thank again everyone who joined me for this for part four of episode 100 to review and to let you know where you can find their work online. Those guests were Podcastings, Michael Bailey, A Views from the Long Box, and From Crisis to Crisis, Michael Bradley of GreatCrypton.com. I was Joe Crawford was found in a cornfield at the age of five, but now blogs about comics abandoned in dollar bins. And he blogs about those outrageously expensive books at For the Non-Discerning Reader on Tumblr. W. Blaine Dowler 
hosts several different science and pop culture podcasts, all of which can be found at Bureau42.com, iTunes, Stitcher, etc. Luke Giaconetti of Earth Destruction Directive and the Vault of Startling Monster Horror Tales of Terror from the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. Scott McGregor produces several podcasts on the Two True Freaks Network, like Weekly Heroics, Mindless Drivel, and Fear the Walking Deadcast, which occasionally has a quarter-bin-diving professor on as a guest. Well, I guess I guessed it on this episode, too, Professor Alan Middleton of the Relatively Geeky Podcast Network and Darkness Delight, and occasionally Fear the Walking Deadcast. Tom Panarese talks about the NOM on In Country, random pop culture topics on Pop Culture Affidavit, and classic literature with the lovely Stella on Required Reading with Tom and Stella. Bill Robinson appears on a variety of shows across the two True Freaks internet radio network, including Back to the Bins, where he sometimes brings a book to cover. Paul Spataro from Back to the Bins, Listen to the Prophets and Is It Jaws? He is also the master of all he surveys. Noel Thingval from Masters of Carpentry, Greystoked, and more which can be found at nolct.blogspot.com and J. David Weeder, but I call him Dave, host of the Sensational Adventures of Wonder Woman podcast. Thanks all. Music in episode 100, part 4 was by Natalie McMaster from her 2002 live album, Natalie McMaster Live. That performance was recorded at the Living Arts Center in Mississauga, Ontario. Information about her and her husband, Donna Leahy's music, can be found at natalieanddonnell.com. Donald is spelled D-O-N-N-E-L-L. If you have any questions or comments, about any of these issues, the episode or the podcast in general, feel free to contact me. Until the next supersized episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bit. Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>